you've gone and put the finance team next to the marketing team. Marketers are usually the extroverts, they're loud, they're noisy, they're collaborating, they're brainstorming. And then you've got the finance team who are very much the introverts who are sitting there trying to concentrate, crunch numbers, do data analytics. And you're sticking the two of them side by side, you are going to create conflict. Welcome to Upon Arrival, a show that uncovers stories and strategies that make up all the moving parts of business events tourism with me, Adelaine Ung. If you missed me, I'm glad to say this podcast is back on the road now that my voice is fully healed after the flu. Thank you so much for bearing with me and I'll get straight to this episode's topic, beginning with this question. Do you sometimes find yourself struggling to concentrate in a noisy open office environment? Or perhaps you felt unmotivated in a drab and not-so-inspiring workspace. We've all experienced the impact of our surroundings on our work experience, whether we realize it or not. As I found out, there are a couple of myths we believe when it comes to how our workplaces are designed. For one, that open office plans are always better for collaboration. And two, that a workplace's aesthetic design has no bearing on our productivity. In this episode, we're going to dig into the why and the how of these issues against the backdrop of our current challenges of the ways we're even showing up for work in a post-COVID world. My guest expert on this topic is Melissa Marsden, one of Australia's leading workplace strategists with over 20 years' experience, including with companies like Air New Zealand and Rugby Australia. What she does is intersect science, technology, design, and optimization for the workspace which sounds utterly fascinating to me. Melissa is also the founder of the workplace design service, Community, spelt with an I at the end. She's also a fellow podcaster and has recently launched her first book called The Next Workplace. Here's the first of my two-part interview with her. Welcome, Mel. Oh, thanks for having me, Adeline. I'm looking forward to being here. Yeah, well, congratulations on the book. I believe you've been on a bit of a launch road trip. That must have been fun. It was. It was super fun. So we went to Brisbane, which is our hometown, off to Melbourne and then Sydney last week. And so now I am back in Brisbane. And uh, after all of the launch festivities, I'm starting to get a bit of a cold. So hence the reason I'm a bit a bit snuffy today for you. So sorry about that. <laughs> you sound amazing. You sound excited. But why are you so excited about this topic? And obviously, if you've put a book together for this, you see a need for your message to get out there. Yeah, absolutely. I have been working in the workplace sector for over 20 years and I absolutely love workplace because I'm very passionate about business and workplace is just another extension of that. So having the opportunity to go in and work with many other businesses to sort of get inside their business, unpack it, see what's working, what's not, and then how I can then help um, elevate that and how I can help optimize their business by looking at their workplace is something that just absolutely thrills me to be able to do that. And so I started writing the book four years ago. And when I first started it, I thought, oh, no one's going to be really interested in reading a book about workplace design. You know, that's not going to be, you know, it's definitely not going to hit the bestseller list or anything like that. But then along came a pandemic and all of a sudden workplace is a very, very hot topic and many people are very interested in it. And what's been really fascinating about this whole process is that despite the fact that we've had a pandemic and I've been doing this for 20 years, a lot of the content in the book remained unchanged. There was only a few little things that I ended up taking out, which was around technology and, you know, the fact that Zoom and, you know, Teams were a thing because prior to the pandemic, people really didn't understand that. But other than that, the principles and the philosophies that I've shared in there are pretty, pretty standing. 
Well, this is definitely an exciting topic. You promise a fresh perspective and alternative reality for what our workplaces could look like. So I'm very much looking forward to unpacking this with you. But first, I'd like to know how you even got into this in the first place. I mean, did it start with the farm that you grew up in in Queensland? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but is this where you first made that direct connection between the environment and our productivity and ultimately our success? Um, absolutely. And it's not until hindsight's a wonderful thing that I kind of had this aha moment a few years ago where it started to really dawn on me the impact of growing up in Western Queensland and the, um, you know, the way that the environment really impacts on your livelihood. And it was actually a business coach I was working with at the time and she helped me make that connection. She's like, you work so hard because you've never learned any other way. And you've learned that if you don't work hard, you don't have a livelihood. And that was a really big awakening for me. And I kind of realized, then that the environment that we live in and we work in plays such a big impact on our experience of life and how we show up. And so when you're working, you know, and living on a farm, you're at the mercy of mother nature. She really determines what's going to happen, you know, whether you've got drought, whether you've got floods, you know, all of those external impacts and you have no control over that. Yet as a workplace designer, I have completely control over the way that we can influence people's behavior, which then in turn influences their performance by the way that we create and style and guide their experience within that workplace. So yeah, definitely stemmed from that and then has kind of inspired that journey along the way. It's so funny because I have a friend who grew up on a farm uh, in New Zealand and he was telling us about how back in the day it was, you know, rain or shine, thunderstorm, hail, whatever it was as a kid, there was no choice. You didn't have a say in the matter. You had to get out even as a kid. You know, we're so pampered these days with our kids. <laughs> That's what I tell my children. The minute there's a <laughs> bit of a storm, it's like, no, you catch a cold, stay indoors. But when he was growing up, it was hail, shine, snowstorm, whatever it was, you still had to go out there. Otherwise, you know, your crops would die or, you know, whatever yeah. was the case. It was that relationship between going to work and then your environment and then how you, you know, what you got back from that. And that, he believed, set him up for success now where you're not such a, I guess, a baby (laughs) to be really unkind. Um, But, you know, you just really put your hands to the plow and you did not look back. I wish I had a little bit of, I don't know if I really wished, but, you know, I sometimes (laughs) wish that I had a little bit of that growing up environment so that I wasn't fighting myself making excuses for so many things. You know, maybe my productivity would, would level up. So this is really interesting. And you somehow translated that to apply in the city work environment, if you like. So I wonder what frustrates mm. you when you enter most work uh, environments. I mean, most offices I've seen, I'd have to say, are more interesting on the outside as far as design is concerned, but pretty predictable once you're inside. So what are most companies missing and what difference does it make? Probably what frustrates me the most when I walk into many organisations is the brief that many people started with. And this is kind of why I developed. So I'm an interior designer by training initially. And then that passion for business is what really kind of led me into workplace strategy. And it was because all the organizations that I was going in to work with were coming to me and going, we employ this many people, so we need to provide this many desks and we've leased this box and we want you to put all the little boxes in the big box. And there was no understanding around who they were, what they did, what their vision for their business was, where their strategic goals were heading, what their values were. And so it was this really 
I suppose, bland interpretation and this very surface level understanding of who their business was because they felt that work was something, you know, a place that you went, you sat on your bottom, you know, you looked at your screen for the for the nine hours a day that you're supposed to be there and you went home again. And by being able to sort of shift that conversation and by engaging at a different level, I was able to find out a lot more about each business. So when I started asking about, well, what their strategic plans were, what their purpose was, what are the values of the organization? How are those values showing up in terms of the behaviors of their people? I then started to understand a very different side of their business, which meant that I had more information to be able to challenge a lot of those, you know, directives that I was getting from organizations. And, you know, historically we've had workplaces that have, three furniture typologies, I call them in a workplace. And that's a workstation, an office and a meeting room. And that's typically what most offices consist of. However, when you understand all the other moving parts in a workplace, what their brand is about, what their brand story is and how that all comes to life, you can start to create a much more diverse and rich environment for people to engage in. Because when you understand how people need to work and what kind of behaviors we want to see from people to know that they're aligned with our organization, you can start to see a variety of collaboration spaces. There's a variety of quiet spaces. There's a variety of work areas. And then there's, of course, all of the things that you do need in terms of offices and meeting rooms and and workstations. But you've just got so much more rich diversity. But then you've also got this brand story that you can overlay. And that's where you start to see the materiality, the texture, the color, all of those finer choices coming together, which really express that personality of the organization. And when you're being asked to put this little, this many little boxes in the big box, you don't see any of that personality. So you just, you know, you can just start designing pretty things that have no relationship to the organization, which in turn drives performance and productivity from your people. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit more about that because, you know, a lot of people, when they think about workplace design, it sounds like more of a nice to have rather than a must have. So how do you make the business case for a workplace strategy? The business case is actually quite a lot more detailed. So when we start working with those organizations, we really want to dig deep. So we start by gathering all of that surface level data. And the interesting thing about a workplace strategy is that a lot of the data that you need to inform the strategy already exists in the organization. It's just about unpacking it and then unlocking it so you know how to interpret it and it guides those decisions going forward. So we engage with the teams through surveys, we do workshops, we do leadership interviews, we observe what's going on in the workplace. So once you've kind of got all of these anecdotal feedback from the people who work there, it's then just watching and seeing, you know, where that blockage is, where that communication fail is, you know, just walking through the floor plate, I can start to see where issues are going to be coming up in a business because I can see silos being formed because of physical barriers or the way that teams are laid out or disbursements across different floors. So, I can visually see all of those things and then with all of that data, I can then start making recommendations back to the business, which builds their business case for them to actually understand what is that next decision they need to make? How much space should we be taking on? What is the cost that we should be in? You know, what sort of financial investment should we be making back into our workplace? And then we can start to talk about what some of those prospective financial returns might be once we get that right space for our people and how they can see that performance uplift. So has anyone called you a workplace shrink? (laughs) (laughs) I actually work with workplace shrinks. They're called org psychs and some of my good friends are that and they they have a very good place in this whole process as well. 
Well, I have never even heard of that term. I'm going to have to speak to one of them and just just find out what, what that sounds fascinating as well. Um, I do know someone who once told me that he could by just by changing where people sat in an office that just changes the energy in the room and productivity goes up and he could quantify it. It was something like 20% productivity went up just by shifting where people sat and who was sitting with who just because of the way they were energetically made up or something or other, but he could quantify it. So I thought, wow, I had never heard of that before. And that was utterly fascinating to me. So there's so much that goes beyond the eye when it comes to our office spaces and how we're interacting with each other and um, how we work together as a team and even individual productivity. So um, this yeah, is entirely uh, super, super interesting. You're about to say something. Yeah, well, just on your point there about the way that you make up teams, I look at the personality profiling of teams, but I also look at personality profiling of individuals. And what I've found to sort of become a problem, I suppose, in terms of the way that some workplaces are laid out is you've gone and put the finance team next to the marketing team. And if you look at those teams from a profiling perspective and a personality style, marketers are usually the extroverts, they're loud, they're noisy, they're collaborating, they're brainstorming. And then you've got the finance team who are very much the introverts who are sitting there trying to concentrate, crunch numbers, do data analytics, and you're sticking the two of them side by side, you are going to create conflict and you're going to create performance issues issues. So really thinking about the makeup and alignment of your teams and where they sit on the floor plate makes a huge difference to the performance of those people. I just had a thought. I mean, what if you had a marriage where an accountant was married to a marketer? I'm just wondering how they sort that out. (laughs) So true. (laughs) Oh, it would be a very interesting conversation. But, you know, as I alluded in the intro, there's so much that seems to be fluctuating at the moment with hybrid models in place. And, you know, some people are still trying to work work at home with kids at home. There's hot desking, there's people doing commercial co-working spaces, which have grown in popularity recently. And also, you know, in an attempt to find balance more recently, there's been the bare minimum Mondays and then the other experts that said, that's the worst idea. Freedom Fridays are the way to go. That's a lot more sensible. And I'm just wondering, you know, will we settle more into a norm anytime soon? Or is this the norm that everything's in a flux situation? We just need to be ready for anything to change without which you know there's another part of my brain that's thinking that's probably not healthy because your nervous system is always on stress it, it's never knowing when it can lift the foot off the pedal I think that's a tricky one to answer. I think that the pandemic definitely kind of gave us all that wake-up call. It was kind of we'd been all going along doing things as we'd always done them because that's how things are done for so long that it kind of gave us that big shake-up that we all needed to kind of go, is this actually the life and the lifestyle that I want to be living And I don't think we've all found the answer to that yet. And I think that's why, you know, we've had the quiet quitting, we've had the great resignation, we've had the bare minimum Mondays, we've got, you know, all of the taglines that are going there. But I think it, for a little while, I think we're still trying to find our feet. And I think organizations are trying to adapt to accommodate those needs. And they're all trying to figure out what that looks like. And, you know, no one's got the answers to that just yet. We're all sort of trying to figure it out. But, you know, to your point about the nervous system, absolutely. I think we're all sitting in that fright or flight for for a period of time. But I think in some ways too, 
individually, we have, are all trying to kind of re-regulate to find a new norm for us. And then we've got to work that into the system of what work looks like and what work, you know, in our organizations look like and how that impacts on my team. And I think we're going to be in that, in that space for a little bit longer because, you know, it, takes a long time to turn it the Titanic you know and that's what many organizations are they're, they're big beasts that take time to reorientate and redirect when they've had such a, a knock um, such as the pandemic but it, it is slowly happening I think I've heard you say that in a lot of ways we are stuck in an archaic system of work design that was not designed for this century it was designed for a previous century, I think it had something to do with the Industrial Revolution. and Yeah, absolutely. So the nine to five Monday to Friday actually started back in the 1920s with Henry Ford when he changed his um, his factory. He wanted, decided that he wanted to run his factory 24 hours a day and then he was going to do that with three eight-hour shifts. But to do that, he would give everyone the weekend off and so hence the five-day work week was born at eight hours a day. So that was 100 years ago and we're still working in that way. And what happened was basically we picked up those same working rhythms and we applied them to our offices. We used to need to go to our offices because we couldn't afford to have the office equipment and, you know, the technology and the computers in our own home because they were a tool of our trade. So we had to go to our place that housed all of that stuff so that we could access it. But we all know that, you know, we're all carrying around a smartphone now and we've all got a laptop. We don't need to physically go to a workplace to work, but that is the expectation and that is the way that our routines and rhythms and rituals have evolved over time is that we haven't actually stopped to reevaluate this and go, is this actually still a feasible way of working? And I think that's where the pandemic has definitely shaken up. shook things up. And many of the clients that I'm working with at the moment are looking at, well, how can we redefine what flexibility looks like in our workplaces? How do we create that so that we're still delivering on our business objectives, we're still supporting and delivering on our clients, but we're also managing the health and well-being of our people by trying to balance this. And it's a very tricky conversation and there is definitely not a one-size-fits-all, but at least com- organisations are having the conversation to, to start the ball rolling. I want to ask you a little bit about how you achieve work-life balance in a little while and because I don't think uh, most of us have got that that right. We may be forever trying to get this right. So in the intro, I mentioned that the events space, we're really great at creating fascinating, exhilarating experiences for clients. But when it comes to our own offices, we've been sometimes criticized for not doing the same. So when you're going to an office space and say you've been invited to to change things up a little bit, maybe you not not do it. Maybe they don't have the whole budget to do a whole overhaul, as in change the whole design of the building. But what would you change so that it does? You know, after you've done a little bit of a study and put the right departments uh, together, what would you change spatially so that it does increase productivity? It does become a place that people are happy to go to. Yeah, I think it really depends on the organisation, but there's a few key elements that I would suggest that organisations should be thinking about. And that's looking at consolidating where all your people sit, because I think with hybrid work, we've taken on a nature of everyone owns their own desk. And so, you know, if you've got 100 people and only 20 of them are coming in, you know, on a particular day, they're quite dispersed. So that loses the energy of the workplace. And so I think if you can start to shift to a, a desk sharing model, and I know most people think hot desks, I hate it, you know, what a horrible, horrible idea. But if you think about the 
the pros of this. It's about bringing those 20 people that are coming into the office together, enabling them to sit together and, you know, feed off each other's energy and actually make the experience of coming into the workplace worthwhile. So that's one that I would consider. The other thing I would think about then too is how can we repurpose some of that excess space? So if you have got occupancy levels are shrinking because people are taking advantage of hybrid working and then working from home and you don't have all of those desks being filled, what can you do to repurpose that space? And so that's where I start to think about, well, how can we create more of that diversity? Because, you know, typically, as I said, most organizations only have the office, the meeting room and the workstation. So can you put some collaboration spaces in? Can you put some quiet working zones in? Can you put some lounge and relaxation spaces in that makes it, you know, much more enjoyable for people to come to work? Because when we're at work, we don't want to actually be sitting at a workstation in front of two screens all day doing our our work. We want to be chatting with our colleagues. We want to be catching up over a coffee. We want to be having that brainstorming session. Or maybe I need to go and do that really quiet work and concentrate on getting that report done. And I've decided to come into the office to do it because I've got three kids running around at home and I can't concentrate. So there's different reasons why people are coming into the workplace. And I think what we need to be really conscious of is making sure that we're creating spaces that support those diverse work style requirements when they are coming in and thinking about if I'm making the effort to come into the workplace what am I coming in here for? What activity am I going to be doing? And how does my workplace then support me in, you know, productively doing that activity? And that's when we start to think about, well, if I'm actually coming into the workplace, I'm not coming in here technically to work. I'm probably coming in here to meet with my colleagues, you know, to do those brainstorming activities, to collaborate, to connect. And, you know, so I think the role of the workplace has shifted a little bit. So that's another thing I'd think about. Plants are a big one bringing some greenery and some biophilia into the space. It lifts people's mood. It helps with indoor air quality. You know, all of those things are really great for our people, but also a bit of color and personality. Uh, I'm a big advocate for trying to communicate your brand story through your space. When I walk into an environment and it has no personality, I have no idea who that client is. I don't know what they do. I don't know what they're about. Like I've got no understanding. And I suppose it's the same thing. It's that first impressions count. You know, when someone meets you for the first time and they see what you're wearing, they see how you talk, you know, all of those sorts of things, give people an insight into who you are and whether or not you're that kind, you know, are you their person? The same for our workplaces. So try and tell your story, show your personality, communicate who you are through your space. So whether that's color, texture, imagery, you know, the furniture choices, all of those sorts of things start to give people an understanding of who you are. And that all takes, you know, that all impacts on that experience of what it's like coming into someone's workplace. Well, I'm shrinking right now just because, um, you know, if you look at my background, if, if you weren't, you know, I'm glad this is a podcast because most people are not actually <laughs> looking at my space. I have got a completely white background. It's just a white wall, white doors. There's a lot of mess on the floor, but thankfully you can't see that. Uh, you know, and that's in direct contrast to Melissa's background, which, you know, she's got a beautiful piece of artwork just right behind her. And she has all the plants that, um, you know, she was just talking about. So, and she's dressed up gorgeously. So I'm shrinking <laughs> right now. Just, just, just saying, um, but I'm wondering also, what, you know, do you, do you find yourself coming across um, or having to deal with a lot of mindset resistance? Because I do know bosses who, you know, for the longest time and may still be grappling with this, uh, with the belief that if I can't see them in the office, I have no way of knowing whether they're actually working or not. And I'll tell you a personal story as well. I used to have my own desk. It was a, you know, cubicle kind of desk. 
But there came a point where I wasn't, you know, I had a change of job description for a little while and I wasn't using that desk anymore, but I still had all my stuff there. And when my boss then wasn't meant to be the most tactful boss, but it was, it was suggested to me that I should move all my stuff out and just hot desk with the other department that I was working more with at that time. I was actually quite offended. <laughs> I felt like <laughs> I felt like you know they were. Rem- oh, I, I felt like my identity had been tied to mm. that desk. It was an expression of who I was because I had my stuff around there. It contained stuff that I didn't want to necessarily want to carry between home and the office. So uh, I'm, I'm just wondering, what do you say to to all of that? Oh, look, it is a common challenge that I do come up against is people do have a sense of identity wrapped up in their physical footprint within a workplace and their desk. And it's usually covered in the family photos and the little trinkets. And that's my particular pen. And there's my coffee cup and, you know, all of those other sorts of things. And I think historically that has been the case because we have expected everyone to be there, you know, five days a week, eight hours a day. But with the shift to being more hybrid and not, you know, not utilizing that work point on a daily basis, I think from an employee's perspective, it's a little bit unreasonable to think that the business should be providing you that space when you're not using it. Whereas if you are willing to give up that space, and it's about a shifting from a mindset of me to a mindset of we. Because if I can start to share that space with other people, then we can have all these other areas because we've got this excess space. We're not using it. Let's look at how we can use it more productively. And that's where we can start to swap spaces out and create more of these collaborative spaces and quiet spaces. Because again, if you think about what you're doing when you are in the office, you're probably not spending a lot of time at that workstation. It just becomes a place for you to keep your stuff. And, you know, if we think about a lot of our stuff is now digitally accessible, we do have lockers, you know, there's other ways that we can start to create, you know, those storage requirements. But in terms of that sense of belonging and identity, where we start to talk about that is looking at how can we create that identity on a team level? And how do we create that? You know, if we, if we do have personal effects, maybe there's some way that we can share them on a, like a, a communal bookshelf or something like that. So that's what we've done with different organizations and shifting them and transitioning them. We've created these communal bookshelves in each of their little neighborhoods is what we call them when they start sharing desks. And that's where all of those sorts of things go. And all of a sudden it becomes this team space of where we're all communicating our personality and our private lives and all of those other pieces in this environment. You know, there's our awards and there's our pictures of our kids and my favorite books. All of that sort of stuff gets there in a shared space. So there's different ways that we can handle it. It's just about being a bit creative, but also involving people in that conversation. It's not something I come in and go, this is what we're going to do. We have conversations around it and we invite people to provide ideas and I I give them some suggestions and then they come up with their own solution. You've been listening to part one of my interview with Melissa Marsden. In part two next week... I don't think work-life balance is realistic. I've redetermined it as work-life integration. We'll take a leap from Mel's own experience and look at what work-life integration means. Also, did you know that there are five levels of remote work? We'll take a look backstage at what the famous companies are doing and what we might learn from them. Hope you'll join me then. Don't forget, if you found value in today's show, do click the follow button if you'd like to be notified when a new episode drops. And if you've ever considered launching a podcast with a strategy to land in Apple's top 200 charts in the first week, 
feel free to send me an email at uponarrivalpodcast at gmail.com and we'll explore how we can make that happen. Catch you next week for part two to uncover more stories and strategies for a successful future. Till then, cheers. Cheers.